northeast, DJing at um, birthday parties, engagements, weddings, retirement parties, like a variety of events. Now, we may have looked like two jokers turned up in a van, but we put a lot of thought into what we were doing. Um, I like to think we, we didn't always succeed at this, but we certainly wanted this party to go as well as possible. We wanted as many people as, dan as dancing as we could. Um, we wanted to create a good atmosphere. So we put quite a lot of thought into it. Like, we had some things that were pre-planned. Like, we always had the th same three songs we'd play at the end of the night. And so we knew when the manager came over and said, oh, one more, lads, that was the cue to start playing our final three songs. Um, because they never cut, well, they were all crowd pleasers and no manager except this one guy in Stockton would ever cut you off if, people, if like, the bride was enjoying herself on, uh, on the dance floor. Uh, other things, you had to try and like, read the crowd. You had to try and respond um, to what they're going. So I'll, I'll give you a little tip now in case you ever find yourself DJing for a crowd. Sometimes it's difficult to get people dancing. And you might have just got a few. And there's a, once you get a critical mass, it's like a gravitational pull. It's easier to get more people dancing. So if you've just started to get people on the dance floor, your next few songs, the choice is critical because you want to keep those people there. They might have just got up because they like that one song and then they're thinking about going to the toilet or going to the bar. You need to keep them there. So what you can't do there is play something that has a long introduction. So Sweet Caroline is a massive crowd pleaser, but it takes so long to get going, people are going to think, oh, I've got time to nip to the toilet and come back. It's the last thing you want to do, so play that at another time. What you want is something that has an immediately recognisable introduction where people go, hey, and then start dancing. That's what you want. So in most places, YMCA will work for that. So instantly recognisable introduction. Uh, people go, hey, and then start going, young man, and, and dancing like that. Um, if it's a bit of a cooler crowd, you can do House of Pain, Jump Around, which, if you know it, has an instantly recognisable introduction where people go, hey, and then start sort of jumping around, as the, the name of the song says. If it's a female heavy dance floor, you can do Beyonce single ladies, and they absolutely <laughs> love it. Um, and then, if it's like, if the female dan heavy dance floor is maybe a bit older generation, and you think, oh, these are like a sing-along, you play one that just comes right in with the vocal, ooh, baby, do you know what that's worth? And then you cut out the music, and all the middle-aged women on the dance floor go, ooh, heaven is a place on earth. <laughs> um, and so, those are some of the classics. Now... The re all of that was basically a waste of your time to say that phrase, heaven is a place on earth. That is the title of my talk today. Um, and I've had that song stuck in, uh, stuck in my mind for the last two weeks while I've been working on this. Heaven is a place on earth. Now, having carried out a detailed analysis of Belinda Carlisle's 1987 lyrics to heaven is a place on earth, I don't think that what she had in mind was what Revelation 21 was talking about, which is what we're looking at today. But it's that phrase that I want us to just think about. Heaven is a place on earth. I'll, I'll come back to it um, about what we, uh, what we mean by that. I think when we talk about the future for a Christian, certainly the word heaven, ask 10 people and you get 12 different opinions. Like Everybody's got different ideas of what we, what we think about that. Um, and I think that this phrase of heaven is a place on earth has just been stuck in my head um, is sort of cutting through a lot of the misconceptions uh, we have and the emphasis that we sometimes put on things that the Bible talks very little about and puts the emphasis where the Bible puts it and where, where, how God has communicated it to his, uh, to his word. So we're going to look at Revelation chapter 21, which in the Bibles that are out and about, if you're wanting to look it up, it's right towards the end. It's page 1,249. 1,249 in 
those Bibles and it's Revelation chapter 21. As Ben said, we are just finishing up here a series on the overall storyline of the Bible. Like, we love getting into the Bible at Grace Church. We think that when we open the Bible, that is God's word, that is God speaking to us. And so that's why we love to spend a bit of time focused here now, just thinking about it together. Um, and it's helpful when we do that because some of the parts of the Bible can be difficult to understand and not immediately obvious what they're talking about. It's helpful to have that overall sweep of the biblical storyline um, clear so that we know where things fit in. And so we started talking about creation, that God created the world, the universe, everything in it. He created me, he created you. And that gives us a purpose. It helps us to understand why we exist and for what purpose. And then we looked at how we mess that up, like we reject God, we want to go our own way, we want to uh, rule our own worlds, and that results in separation from God, it results in conflict between people, it results in brokenness in the world and in our own lives. And then last week we looked at what God does to solve that problem. Like we can all see in the world around us that there's like loads of good, but there's also loads of bad. And what, what God did to solve that problem was Jesus came. He lived the life that we fail to live. He died the death we should have died so that our sins can be forgiven. So that's brilliant. And then we might be thinking, well, what next? Like forgiveness and then sort of crack on like before. Well, that's not the end of where the, the Bible goes. And that's what we're looking at today. You rarely read about the cross of Jesus without also hearing about his resurrection. God offers forgiveness like for now, forgive, he'll offer forgiveness again tomorrow. But he also offers hope for the future. And it's that future that we're thinking about today. I think this is massively important for two reasons. One of them I sort of touched on a minute ago is that I just think there's so many misconceptions about this. Um, amongst Christians, amongst non-Christians, like there's so many misconceptions about what Christians believe about the future. And so just taking a look at what, the, what God emphasizes rather than some of the things that our culture emphasizes I think um, will make a big difference for us. But also, not just to clear up misconceptions, I think it's really important because it has a massive impact on your day-to-day -day life. So I heard a story before saying, imagine there's two people who are given this job and it's like the most mundane, boring, frustrating job you can think of. They've just got to move widget A onto widget B. They've got to do that for 10 hours a day, just every day. They don't get a day off. They've just got to do that for a year. And one of them's being told, at the end of the year, you're going to get paid £20,000 for it. The other one's being told, at the end of the year, you're going to get paid £20 million for it. What's likely to happen is the one who's doing the really frustrating job, who's looking towards £20,000, he might think, oh, I can do it. But as the year goes on, it's just so frustrating, he ends up giving up. He certainly doesn't um, look forward to the, um, that, that reward in the same way that the other one who thinks, oh, I can get £20 million for this. He's working away at it, just thinking about that future. It makes a massive difference to the experience that he has um, on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think that our understanding our hope for the future, what God has for us for the future, will make um, a massive difference to our day-to-day -day experience. So in keeping with the title, Heaven is a Place on Earth, I've got five points. They've all been titled by an 80s song choice. I might have had too much time on my hands when I was going through this, although I don't, I, I don't know. Anyway, so... Um, <laughs> Point number one, let's get physical. Olivia Newton-John, 1981. Um, Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. The popular idea of heaven, when you talk about the, the, the word heaven, is you think, well, yes, the Christian belief is you go to heaven when you die. But what is meant by that, as I said, means very wildly from person to person. I think the major issue is that we tend to think of it, or the, the common view, is that you leave your bodies behind and you enter some sort of spiritual dimension for eternity. That's not what God teaches. We believe, or certainly I believe, that as a Christian, if I was to die, I will go to be with Jesus. Yet there's a number of places in the Bible that teaches that. In one place it says, when you're absent from the body, you're present with the Lord. One of the biblical writers, Paul, says, you know, if I die, I'm going to go and be with Jesus. And even Jesus, when he's on the cross, turns to one of the, 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 the people who's been crucified next to him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so, as a Christian, if I was to die now, I, I go to be with Jesus. Now, that is what, what exactly that's like. We don't have a lot of information. That's probably the closest thing to what we think of as heaven, if we think of it as some sort of spiritual realm. But the key thing is, that is not our final destination. Because we believe that it's not just that I die and then I float off into some spiritual dimension. It's that at some point, Jesus is going to return. Jesus is coming back, and when he does, we're told that the, he, he ushers in a new creation. That's what we're looking at here with this new heaven and new earth. What they're calling the new Jerusalem there, the new city coming down to earth. That new creation is not disembodied, it's physical. I went for the Olivia Newton-John title of Let's Get Physical. The major example for this is Jesus' resurrection. Now, there's loads of stuff about our future that's sort of symbolic and uh, uses a lot of rich imagery to teach us things. I mean, this, this chapter especially, and I'll talk a bit about that in a minute. And so it can be a bit difficult to get our heads around because it's not telling us specifics, but it's trying to communicate a big picture. The resurrection of Jesus is not like that. It's very specific. It's not imagery designed to teach us something. He was resurrected from the grave he came back to life and that's described as the first fruits of what we will all experience that means for the christian that we expect to be resurrected in a physical body the same way that jesus was he was resurrected with a physical body that could touch he could eat things it seemed to be better than his previous physical body but retained some continuity he still had the scars in his hands uh, where nails had gone through and we'll be resurrected like that we'll have a physical body We'll live in a physical creation. We'll be doing things. It won't be some sort of essence of you, like drifting around with no body. We'll have a physical body, live in a physical creation. We'll be doing things. That's the hope that we are given for the future. And I think it's quite different to that general vague notion of going to heaven when you die. Now, Belinda Carlyle, when she's singing Heaven is a Place on Earth, was talking about having a heavenly experience on the earth now, which can be maybe a good thing to discuss at another time. But what I mean when I'm saying heaven is a place on earth is this, that our ultimate destination is so, not some mysterious place called heaven. It's a new heaven and a new earth. It's heaven come down to earth. Our ultimate destination is heaven on earth. Tim Keller said, what's the climax at the end of history? It's not individual souls rising up and escaping this material world. 
you don't see individual souls escaping the earth and going to heaven. What you have is heaven coming down and transforming the earth. So when we think about our hope for the future, it's physical. We'll spend eternity living in bodies in the new creation, a renewed, restored, redeemed earth. And so once we've understood that, we start to think, well, what's this earth going to be like? Like, I've said we're going to be doing stuff. Like, what things will I be doing? Um, we've said we've got physical bodies. Like, what, what will my body be like? And that's where we're going to get stuck into this uh, chapter of Revelation 21. gives us a beautiful picture of this new creation. doesn't teach us everything that the Bible has to say, uh, but it teaches us some major um, and important things. Now, you'll see as we read through the rest of it, and you'll pick it up straight away even from those first two verses, it's rich with imagery. Um, this book is a vision, or these parts that we are reading, are a vision given to one of Jesus' disciples, John, um, and it's communicating things about the future in that sort of, like, with wild, like, metaphors. This is one of the more sort of sensible bits. There's some crazy stuff in there, crazy-sounding stuff. It's a type of literature that uses layers on top of layers on top of layers of, like, vivid images. Now, my preference is for things that are straight-up obvious, like a textbook-type thing. So I've said before to many people that I liked all the Marvel movies till they started getting into the multiverse. And I can't stand stuff about the multiverse. And I was moaning on at the multiverse uh, to Ben a, a few weeks ago, a few months ago now probably. And I'd watched the sort of Oscar-winning or nominated film Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is about the multiverse. And I was just like, oh, it's an absolute load of rubbish, isn't it? It's, um, um, it's about the multiverse. Can't stand anything about the multiverse. And that's a great example. And Ben was like, no, but that's actually good. And I was like, oh, there was nothing good about it. And then Ben did that classic thing he can do of he told me what it was really communicating. I thought, well, what Ben said there is really good, but I thought the movie was absolutely rubbish. And so what, what that is, it shows you, my mind was just watching it thinking, this is a load of trash, like, I don't know what we're watching again. Um, whereas Ben was able to see through those images to see it was communicating real truths about the way we interact with the world. So maybe Ben should have been doing the Revelation 21 one instead of me. Uh, but that's what we need to try and do. We need to try and see through the imagery to see what God's uh, looking at um, or what he's trying to communicate. Um, it's like when people can observe fine works of art and they stand there looking at it for ages and they they're able to see things and I just think, oh yeah, like the cow looks really realistic and like move on to the gift shop. Um, the, we need to sort of spend a bit of time looking and thinking, allow us to, allow it to come, come, come to us, allow us, ourselves to drift into it. We need to avoid a tendency that we have to fixate on the details. Thinking if the gates that we're going to read about are made from a single pearl, then how big do the hinges need to be to support that? We need to avoid that sort of thing. And we need to look at the big principles, the life-transforming truths that God is communicating to us. So I'm sure there'll be loads of questions that I won't answer about this. Feel free to come up to me afterwards. But let's try and look at the, the main things that God is communicating here. Firstly, no more tears. Barbara Streisand, 1980. Then I saw a new heaven. I know I've read this, but let's go for it. We're going to read till... Tell you what, let's just read the full thing and then we'll come back to the normal tears. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people 
and God himself will be with them and that be their God. will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious, precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The walls of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city pure, of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth and the twelfth ameth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the King of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. There's loads of mad stuff there, loads of vivid images. Like, we're trying to describe the indescribable here, like what it's going to be like in the new creation. Everything that we do in some way is going to come up short. But I think there's some really um, big ideas that we can see here that make a massive difference to our life now and give us great hope for the future. And the first one is that no more tears. Like, there's nothing bad in the new creation. There's no bad stuff exists. Like, that starts with the sea. Like, a bit of a random bit, isn't it, in, in verse 1? There was no longer any sea. But throughout the Bible, the sea is seen as a symbol of chaos, of, like, unknown and danger. That's why Jesus' miracles are so impressive, the ones that he does on the sea, where he calms a storm or walks on the water. And so whether or not that's teaching us that there'll be no large bodies of water, that's missing the point. 
It's saying there'll be no chaos. There'll be no sense of that dangerous unknown about what might be out there, what might happen. The new creation is somewhere where you'll never be worried about what might be happening, like what, what might go wrong in the future. You'll never be thinking like that. We're given a brilliant list of things that won't be there, sort of verse 4. No more tears, they're all going to be wiped away. No death, no mourning, no pain. Now, if you spend a minute and just really think about that, it's, it's like unbelievable. It's just so good, it's unbelievable. Think about the pain and suffering and, and that you've experienced, the tears you've cried or somebody close to you has. It could be physical, mental, emotional, all of that. None of that will exist. What about the specific pain of like death, about losing somebody, of grief? That will not exist anymore in the new creation. Like our lives now have moments of like real great joy and, and beauty, but they also have moments of like really significant pain. And our life in eternity in the new creation will not have any of that bad stuff. No tears, no death, no mourning, no pain. I remember, like, years ago, I was probably in my early 20s. This is no um, comment on people who are at that age now. It's a comment on me at that age. That I heard somebody say that this sometimes was the only comfort he could cling on to in the midst of a broken world. I didn't quite get it. I think it was just I hadn't been exposed to uh, much suffering and, and pain in my life at that time. But then I remember being at another time, a few years later, just being in a meeting with some of the people from the, the church I was in at the time, and somebody was telling us about the situation that was just so bleak and so desperate. We were like, right, let's pray about it now. And I just, I, I couldn't think of anything to pray other than, Lord, I thank you that you, there's going to be a day where we're not crying tears about this, when there is, people aren't suffering this sort of pain. Sometimes this, this is what we need to make it through those times. Now, I'm aware that, like, in a room with this many people, and some people are going to be in those bleak, desperate moments, like, right now. With physical, mental, emotional, like, whatever it is, some people are in that place right now. And I want to be clear that I think that we should be praying that God would turn those situations around. I believe he can turn those situations around in the present. But we know that he doesn't always answer our prayers exactly how we want him to or how we think is best. And if God does something different that we don't understand or he takes longer than we think he should, we can cling on to this, that there's going to be a day, no more tears, no more pain, no more death. We don't know exactly how God is going to answer our prayers in the present, but this new creation is like a cast iron guarantee that we do know. It's like money in the bank or money in your pocket, whichever one you think is safer of those. It's like rock solid. We will experience this. We will. It's a, it's a promise of God. It's secure. It will happen. Like as a Christian, this is a reality that I will experience. And that gives us great hope for the future that we no more see is there's nothing bad there. Second point, simply the best, Tina Turner, 1989. In verse 17 to 21, there was loads of stuff about those Precious jewels, wasn't there? A list of 12, 12 jewels. Stuff about the streets being made of, of gold. And there's loads of stuff you can take from that. But at the very least, we should think, like, the most precious, most valuable things we can think about that are, like, rare and expensive are, like, the building materials of this new creation. That's how good it is. The most valuable, precious things we can imagine are just sort of, like, the mundane, every, everyday building materials in the new creation. 
I don't think that necessarily means you'll be, you'll be walking on like paving stones made of gold. But it communicates that how great this new creation will be in comparison to the best that we can experience now. In elsewhere in the Bible, uh, one of the Old Testament prophets links a lot of these jewels, I think it's almost exactly the same list, um, to things that were going on in the Garden of Eden. It's saying like this is like returning to God's original vision for what the earth would be like, but even better. Think of the best food you've ever tasted or uh, the best music you've ever heard or the best experience you've ever had. Like the peak of, of joy that you've ever experienced. That's like just a, a tiny little shadow of what we'll experience there. What we'll experience in the new creation is like simply the best. It'll be better than the best. We see this in, in verse 8 as well where um, Jesus, who's the person speaking on the throne, is introduced in verse 5. He's saying some things and what he says is, no, it isn't verse 8, it's verse 6. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. He's communicating in the new, new creation, we'll be fully satisfied, we'll, be, we'll find true fulfillment. In the book of Jeremiah, it says, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. We've turned away from the water of life and dug out our own cisterns that don't satisfy. That, that last bit was me. I just didn't put the full stop in there. So we, he stuffed our broken cisterns that cannot hold water. What I'm summarizing that as, we've turned away from the water of life and dug out our own cisterns that don't satisfy. Just a, a great picture of like what we do. He is God offering like true satisfaction, true fulfillment, everything that we need. And we turn our back on him and we like dig in these like rubbishy, Systems that can't hold water properly and we're wondering why we're not satisfied with the things that we go after. In Isaiah chapter 55 it says, Come all you are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labour on what does not satisfy? It's extending the same invitation here. It's recognising that we spend our money and we spend our time and we labour for things that never satisfy us. And Isaiah was looking forward to a day when, some, when God would be saying, come and get this satisfying living water without money, without cost. And that's what Jesus is saying here. To the thirsty I'll give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. How many times have you experienced something to be not as satisfying as you thought it would be in this life? Like, it's all the time. It's everything. In the new creation, we'll be satisfied. There'll be no cost to that. I mean, we won't have to work for it. That will just be our normal experience of everything. So, so far, what will the new creation be like? It'll have nothing bad in it. It'll, everything there will be good. Not only good, but like better than the best things we can imagine. Like all the bad things that you've experienced in your life, there'll be no trace of that. All the good things you've experienced, it'll be that times a, a million. There's a brilliant quote I'm sure has been lo used loads of times in, in Grace Church before from the end of C.S. Lewis's uh, Narnia series of books. And it says this right at the end, for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they lived, all lived happily ever after. But for them, this is the, like the characters in the story, but it works really well for, for us thinking what it would be like as we enter the new creation. 
we think of that like Jesus returning or our death as being like the end. It's actually the beginning. I'll pick it back up with a quote now. For them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's what it is for us in the new creation. It'll be nothing bad, everything will be better than the best we've ever experienced. But there's one massively defining feature of the new creation which is placed above everything else here and everywhere that the Bible talks. We might be obsessed with the details, like what age will my body be? Will I be able to jump higher than I can now? Like different things like that. The Bible doesn't answer that. God communicates this. This is the thing that we need to know about it. We'll be in God's presence. I'm titling this point, Together Forever, Rick Astley, 1989. Yeah, I didn't know he had another song either, but I, I looked up something about together. We'll be together with God forever. That's what it says in verse 3. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. This has been the promise from the start of creation and here we'll see it totally fulfilled. It'll be fully realised. There'll be no more separation between us and God. There'll be no more distance. No more doubt. We'll live with him. He'll be fully present with us. You might have noticed in the weird measuring bit that the new city is described as a cube, like an angel measures out its length and then it says it's the same width and, and height. It's a, it seems to be a cube. I don't think that means that the new creation will exactly be a cube. Maybe it is, but that's not the point. The point is, there's another significant cube in the Bible and it was the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, at the centre of the tabernacle or at the centre of the temple. And that was where God's presence dwelt, like a cloud came down and God was present in that small part at the centre of the temple. And you couldn't go in there because you'd die. Only the high priest was allowed to go in there and he could go in there once a year. And that was because our sin makes it impossible to enter God's presence. And so there was this cube where God was, but like there was a barrier like we couldn't get in there. Whereas now the full city is the most holy place and we're all in it. We're all in God's presence. There's no barrier anymore. We're in God's presence forever. It continues that in verse 22, saying there's no temple. Like you don't need a temple there because God's everywhere. We're already there with God. All those questions we might have about the little details of what will our bodies be like and will we eat and will we go to the toilet and that sort of thing. Um, they'll just they'll fade away in like awe at being in his presence. And it isn't just that we, we, we like proximate, like we've got proximity to God. It's an intimate relationship. It talks throughout that about this being a marriage. Like this city is prepared as a bride for Jesus. And then there was somewhere else. Yeah, verse 9. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. We, God's people, are described as the bride of Jesus. And that's this, the wedding's taking place. You know, the, the bride and the groom are finally coming together. The very reason that God invented marriage as something that we experience is to communicate this, to give us a glimpse of what this is like. Think of the best possible moments in the best marriages you know of, or the best moments in your own marriage if you're married. And that's just barely scratching at the surface of the intimacy that we'll enjoy with God in eternity. 
This is the point. This is the thing about the new creation. That we're present with God. We're united with him. That's the point of the new creation. We get to be with Jesus. And so then we last thing is, well, who, who, who gets to be there? Who gets to be with Jesus? And so my final point is, sign your name, Terence Trent Derby, 1987. Who's going to be there? Well, look at verse 8. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice in magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they'll be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. They're not going to be there. And at first glance, that seems good. I nearly put it in that nothing bad section because I don't want murderers there. I don't want vile people there. But then the more I look at it, the more worrying it gets. I, I don't think that what he means by magic art is those card tricks I used to try and do when I was a kid. But certainly, I'm cowardly, often cowardly, I've told lies. I, I definitely chase after other gods instead of gods. And even without that, like it says that the victorious people who will inherit the new creation. That was in verse 7. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this. Am I victorious? I don't really feel like I'm victorious. What do I have to win the victory over? Will I be able to win that victory? Starting to get a bit worried here that maybe I might not make the cut for being in there. You look at verse 27, right at the end of the chapter. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anybody who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We, I, have made ourselves impure by disobeying God. So I, I've, I've taken away my entry. I can't earn entry there. But the good news is, it's the people who do enter are the ones whose name, names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb there is Jesus. When Jesus is referred to as the Lamb, it's, it's focused on his sacrifice for us. The names that are in that book, the book of life, are people who've put their trust in the Lamb's sacrifice, in his sacrifice in our place. If you're putting your trust in Jesus' sacrifice to cleanse his sins, not my own efforts to clean myself up, then your name is in that Lamb's book of life. Now, the various sort of cult, common cultural, um, I don't know, memes or tropes about heaven usually include a gatekeeper it's usually described as peter at the pearly gates checking who goes in and goes out checking your credentials can you get into heaven or not but what i want to say to you is this communicates here it's not like a job interview do you have the right qualifications have you done the right stuff to get in it's more like a party it's a wedding reception like if your name's not down you're not coming in if it is down you're coming in it's not like you're presenting a list of qualifications at a job interview, I'm presenting a CV and that's got my name at the top, like my accomplishments. But I'm going to a wedding later this week of a family member. It's not, I'm not going there on my own. I'm going because I know them. I've been invited by them. It'll have their names up in like those flashy light sign things, if that's what they chose to go for. You know, it, I'm going in on their name. I'm allowed in because... They're the people who booked a room and they're the people who decide who's there. The good news is that anybody can access this. Anybody can be in this new creation. Anyone's name can go in that Lamb's Book of Life. But 
You've got to relinquish your own pride. You've got to relinquish your own sense of achievement. You've got to put your CV down. You've got to sign your name under his. Don't put your name at the top of your own CV and, and present that. That's not going to be enough. Now sign your name under Jesus in the Lamb's Book of Life. You're getting in because of him. Let's pray.